0: back to another edition of the Midweek Podcast with Cornerstone on the go. This week, our episode is called King Me. When I was a child, there was nothing more exhilarating and nothing more deflating than the phrase, King Me, when playing checkers. Saying the words gave me a sense of victory or accomplishment, or at least a hopeful victory, even if I was down several pieces to my opponent. And nothing caused more apprehension or would cause me to cringe than my opponent saying the words king me as well because I felt like they had gained the upper hand these words the same words both brought hope and excitement and also the sense of defeat or the threat of imminent defeat at the very least a new challenge at hand with a like with a piece that can move back and forth and pose a new new threat to me Turning our attention to 1 Samuel, we're not going to see these exact words or the same phrase, king me, in any of its pages. But we do notice that the nation of Israel expresses their desire for God to king them by granting them a king to rule over them like the surrounding nations. We see them make this request to the prophet Samuel in Samuel chapter 8 verses 1 through 5. The word says, as Samuel grew old he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. The elders ask Samuel to appoint a king to rule over them. Their request marks a significant transition in Israel's history, because until now Israel was a theocracy, or a nation whose deity was its ruler. But now, as the time continues to progress, I want to back up just for a second. We see Moses called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. Joshua is appointed by Moses to be his successor, but God never instructs uh, Joshua to have a successor after him. And as a result, we turn to the book of Judges, and we see that after Joshua and his generation died, there was another generation that came into being that did not know the Lord nor of his mighty acts like the generation did before. And as we close the book of Judges, we see these words that because of this, the people did what was right in their own eyes. And the author of Judges also makes mention that there was no king over Israel at this time. Samuel would have been the last of the, of the judges, so to speak, of the acting judges that would start and finish as such. The elders come. Samuel because they saw and recognized that his sons were not men of integrity, they were not men who pursued godliness, and they also recognized the need for a more centralized government. At this point, all 12 tribes of Israel were kind of united loosely with one another and each responsible for seeking the Lord on their own. But these elders of Israel realized that there was a foreign threat in the form of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So they saw a decaying spiritual leadership in Samuel's sons, a growing threat from the nations around them. And so they request to Samuel, hey, let's make a change. Let's move from a theocracy. And instead, let us move toward having a king. Let's become a monarchy. Well, as you can imagine, this kind of destroys Samuel, or at least probably bothers Samuel. He's, He's a man now of old age, faithfully served the Lord and his people, and here he feels like they are rejecting him, but later we'll see that that's not the case. But I think that Samuel was also heartbroken because their request proves that they had forgotten, or at least were ignoring, that their differences from the other nations around them were their source of success, strength, and safety. They were wanting to be conformed to the world at large instead of being conformed by God and His Word. God had chosen them to be His people. He chose to dwell among them, and He gave them His law so they could experience life. These truths combined were Israel's secret sauce. My dad makes a fantastic barbecue sauce. It's called double-double sauce. I don't know the recipe, but whatever the combination of those ingredients are, they give him one more of a secret sauce to put on that yummy, mouth-watering barbecue. And we see that Israel's differences combined was what set them apart. It's what provided safety. It's what provided the provision because it came from their God who had set them apart as holy and distinct from others. These things combined were the source of God's blessing upon them. And we can applaud the elders' concerns about the inability of Samuel's sons to lead the nation of Israel because of their greed and their lack of respect for justice. And I think as Americans, for the most part, we can relate to achieving peace through strength through strong leaders and through a strong military presence. The elders were simply looking out for the country's well-being, and for that, I don't think they can be faulted. However, this is where we can find fault. This is where we can find a example not to follow in our scriptures. And that is this, that they neglected humbly coming to Samuel. Out of concern about what they saw, the state of leadership, out of concern for the threats that they saw for, from the surrounding nations, with a simple and sincere desire to seek the Lord and to seek His plan concerning their current situation. Instead of doing that, they come, maybe not admittingly, but they come arrogantly. They come in their own control. They come with their own plan and their own agenda, and they present it to Samuel, and then they ask Samuel to take it to God For them on their behalf. You see, I think looking at this, they planned to remove, whether they meant to or not, they meant to remove or they were planning to remove the crown of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to a man created by their covenant God. Bothered by the elders' request, Samuel went to the Lord for guidance. And verse 6 is a great reminder there in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 6 reminds us that we can go to our God when we need advice or when we are troubled by something. In verses 7 through 9, they show us that He will provide direction when we humbly seek Him. These are promises that we have throughout Scripture, and we see it plainly here once again in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In verses 7 through 8, we see that God responds to Samuel. We see how he gives direction because Samuel humbly sought him. God told Samuel, do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from the Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way the king, or a king, will rule over them. and these verses, we see that the nation of Israel defiantly cries out, King me, king us, as they reject their God as their king, and to have a king in his place like other nations. Yet, as you look at the Pentateuch, or another name for the first five books of our scriptures, of our Bibles, There is an expectation of there being kings ruling over God's people. When we look at Genesis, God promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that kings will be included in their descendants. Before Jacob passes on into eternity, he pulls his sons together and speaks words over them. When it comes to Judah, Jacob says that Judah will be the tribe from which kings arise. You can see that in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And as Moses prepared a new generation there in the book of Deuteronomy to go into the promised land, he prepares them for a king, what it would include, and what he would need to do in order to be successful in all that he did as God's vice regent. So in short, the people's sin wasn't in asking for a king, because it seemed to be part of God's plan for the nation all along. However, their sin was demanding a king immediately. I think God already had a king in mind, and that being a king who was a man after God's own heart, a man that we'll talk about in our next episode, David, who was from the tribe of Judah. Yet God let the people have it their way, and he granted them a king at the time of their asking. And we see Saul become the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and not Judah. Which I think is evidence enough to prove that Saul was never intended to establish a lasting dynasty. Period, because of Genesis forty nine ten saying that kings would come from the tribe of Judah. Howbeit, Saul becomes the nation's first monarch. The Lord had given Israel His commands and presence so that they might choose life and enjoy success, in the land that He was giving them. The same principle applies. To us today. And yet, God will allow us to choose our path. And sometimes, His giving us what we desire as kings and queens of our lives, as the ones sitting on the throne of our life, even though that's where our Lord deserves and is worthy of being, He will give us what we so desire as one of His most effective ways to bring judgment or discipline upon our lives as His children. The prophet Hosea refers to this request of God's people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and Hosea chapter 13. Up until this point of the book, Hosea is laying out the reasons for God's coming judgment on the northern kingdom, Israel, through the Assyrians. And in chapter 13, the prophet refers to this request of God's people as evidence of the nation's long history Of rebellion against and forsaking of her God. Again, as he builds his case to justify the coming judgment of God by using the Assyrians. Hosea says that by them requesting one of their own to rule over them at this particular instance in their history was an example of them forsaking their God. And we see that God granted their request in 1 Samuel 8. As his way of judging this particular sin, Hosea 13:9 through 11 tells this. You are about to be destroyed, O Israel, yes by me, your only helper. This is God speaking. Now where's your king? Let him save you. Where are all the leaders of the land? The king and the officials you demanded of me. Man Almost 200 years later, God is reminding them of this decision in the nation's history. And though it's taken years for the punishment to come full circle, for it to grow completely, uh, he points back to this instance in 1 Samuel 8 and says, Hey, remember, um, you asked for a king instead of me. And where are they now? They're mere human. They were frail sinners. They cannot help you. But I, as your helper, the one who could help you, is now going to destroy you, to discipline you. In verse 11, we see that in my anger, I, and again this is God speaking, gave you kings. And in my fury, I took them away. We see that God's granting their request for a king was out of his righteous anger. It was so that they could see the error of their ways. Our Good Shepherd's willing to lead us down paths of righteousness, but he'll not force us to follow him. God gives the people their requests and allows them to travel down this path that they have chosen, and it seemed right to them at this point in the nation's history, in their current circumstances. But in the end, it led to a heavy burden and the nation's downfall to Assyria. When we come to God demanding our way or simply spouting off what we desire to see in a situation, instead of humbly coming to Him, asking Him to show us which path to take concerning anything, we are also at risk of God giving us what we want, despite the dangers awaiting us on the other side of our desire's door. So again, one of the ways that God disciplines us as his children is to give us what we want when we replace him as king of our lives with ourselves. While God will allow us to venture off course and away from his will, he won't let us do so blindly. He lovingly displays big flashing warning signs down our wayward paths. I can't think about a making a case for a bolder sign or a brighter sign than the one that God instructs Samuel to give the people in First Samuel 8, which includes all of what they can expect by living under a monarch. Despite everything, the king would take away from them. In fact, if you read First Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18, you'll notice that there is a word that is repeated over and over again, That describes life under a monarch, and that is that the king will take, he will take, he will take, he will take in order to support his own kingdom. We see that this is a flashing light, it's a flashing warning sign to the people, and yet they plowed ahead towards this governing transition. By contrast, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, shows us. And reminded the Israelites of all that the Lord would give them. That he would give them as his people. And the list of these benefits also included protection from and victory over their enemies from all sides. The total weight of selecting a moral sovereign wouldn't be fully realized by the nation until about 80 years later. When Israel's third king Solomon would take the throne. After ruling for about 4 decades, Solomon passes on into eternity and his son Rehoboam ascends to the throne. As he ascends to the throne, his subjects request that he make the burden in which their which his father placed upon him lighter. This burden that was so heavy was put upon the people by Solomon in order to maintain the splendor of his own personal physical kingdom. And so after he passes and Rehoboam takes the throne. They plead with him as king. Please lighten our load. The weight of a king taking had finally been realized all these years later. God will allow us to rule our lives, but while he will allow us to rule our lives, if we so desire, we can be sure that if we're his children, he will discipline us because of his love for for us. Sometimes He disciplines us by once again giving us what we want to teach us that what we wrongly desired wasn't what we needed. At other times, He disciplines us through the weightiness of His Spirit's convicting work in our lives. His correction comes in many forms, and just like I have to discipline my children differently because of who they are, our Father disciplines us in the way that He knows He will be most effective in our lives. Yet for all of us, James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15 serves as our giant, brightly shining warning sign of what our removing the crown of rule from our Lord's head and placing it on our heads instead will lead to. In James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15, the Lord's half-brother gives us this warning. He says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Now, pay close attention to verse 15. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The elders' desires for national security... For personal protection led them to replace their invisible, almighty God with a visible but limited king. Though not inherently wrong, their desires gave birth to sinful actions. Specifically, the action of rejecting the Lord their God as their sovereign, as their king, and as their source of provision and protection. Throughout the approximate 120 years of kingly reign, the effects of this sinful desire grew, leading to Israel's divided kingdom. The kingdom divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being Israel and the southern kingdom being Judah. But both kingdoms eventually meet their fate. Israel in 722 BC by the Assyrians and Judah in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Why? Because many of these desired kings led the people away from God instead of towards Him. We let these elders during the time of Samuel will be tempted to call the shots. To make the decisions for life without first seeking the Lord in His will pertaining those decisions. If left to grow... If left unchecked, our sins of pride and self-reliance, as evident, as evident in our replacing God with ourselves on the throne of our lives, will lead to death and not life in any and all areas of our lives. I'm reminded of a story that I heard in children's church as a kid about a boy who found a baby tiger cub. And of course, it was one of those things like, can we keep them? And the village elder said no. And when the little boy asked why, it was because that eventually tiger cubs become full-grown adult predatory tigers. There was a danger in keeping this cub near and around the village. After giving the boy the stern warning and direction not to take care of the cub, but instead to let the cub fend for itself, whether or not it survived, the little boy decided that he was going to be ruler of his life. And in that brief moment, he decided to bring this little tiger cub home into the village. And once in the village, this little boy nurtured the tiger cub, And as the tiger cub began to grow, he realized he couldn't keep it within the confounds of the village, at least not do so and keep it a secret. So he moves it to an area outside of the village, and the process continues. The little boy goes and checks on the tiger. Both the tiger and the little boy mature. The tiger reaches adulthood, and one day the little boy goes out to check on the tiger, but this time the tiger turns on the boy and devours him. Despite the elder's warning, the boy refused to listen and obey his ruler, and he kept the tiger, and he nurtured it until it was grown and until it could eat him. This story I think illustrates exactly what James warns us of in the first chapter of his letter, and it seemed visibly in God's people replacing him as their king in first Samuel. When we choose to stray from God's revealed plan that leads to life and forge down a path of sinful rebellion, when we dethrone him as king of our lives with ourselves or make life's decisions without humbly seeking him, we too are trading God's gracious abundance for grave deficits as we continue walking right into our enemy's watering mouth. Psalm 95.3 tells us that the Lord is a great king, a great king above all other gods, after explaining why he is the great king above all others, Moses instructs us on how we are to correctly respond to this truth in verses 6 and 7 there of Psalm 95. Part of how we respond to God's greatness is by listening to his voice. For the ancient Hebrews, the word translated as listening wasn't limited to simply hearing, but it was connected with obeying what was heard. And in 1 Samuel, we see a great example of a woman who heard God's voice who knew the scriptures and who humbled herself before him and by humbling herself before him in prayer she submitted her desires and concerns to him she submitted these things under his lordship and this woman's name is Hannah and you can see her prayer in first samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 But in contrast, we see how the elders put their desires and concerns over his lordship. As a result, we see that God exalted Hannah and humbled the nation at large. So may we respond to God as the great king of all the earth by submitting every area of our lives under the lordship of Jesus, and not by submitting the lordship of Jesus under every area of our lives. May we be a people who can genuinely, genuinely, I'll get it out here in a minute, genuinely live by the phrase King Him and not King Me. Because when we demand that God King us, it is a statement of defeat, though it may temporarily feel like it's a personal victory or achievement of freedom. Yet when we cry out King Him and we live accordingly, there will be a surrender of our will to His. But this surrender of our will to Him will bring victory and blessing in our lives. This was the next piece in our big puzzle of the main storyline of the Bible as we continue to go through the 52 major stories of the Bible. And in summary, this episode teaches us that God is King, and it is for His glory and our joy. And others will being that we submit to him in every area of our lives. I pray that you and I will be a people that live with the motto of King Him. That we live for him and his glory. And not for any selfish reasons in our lives. That we submit every area of our lives under his lordship. And not his lordship under any area of our life. Hey, church, thanks for joining me once again. I hope this has been a challenging week for you and that it helps you grow in your relationship with Christ even more as we wait together once again on Sunday morning. All right, until next time.